This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with Joseph Baker, Associate Professor of Sociology at East Tennessee State University. Dr. Baker is author of Crusading for Moral Authority, Christian Nationalism and Opposition to Science with Samuel L. Perry and Andrew L. Whitehead. Keep America, Christian and White, Christian Nationalism, Fear of Ethno-Racial Outsiders, and Intention to Vote for Donald Trump in the 2020 Presidential Election, also with Perry and Whitehead. Immigration, Presidential Politics, and Partisan Polarization Among the American Public, 1992 to 2008, with Amy E. Edmonds, which is forthcoming. His books include Fear Itself, The Causes and Consequences of Fear in America, with Christopher Bader, L. Edward Day, and Ann Gordon. Deviance Management, Insiders, Outsiders, Hiders, and Drifters, with Christopher Bader. American Secularism, with Buster G. Smith. And Paranormal America, now in second edition, with Christopher Bader and F. Carson Minkin. Today on the Annex, xenophobia, fear, and American religion. You won't want to miss it. Well, Joseph Baker, thanks so much for for joining the Annex. So happy to talk with you about your work. Really extensive uh, set of articles and and books that you have published in, in your career. And so we're really excited to get into it today and talk with you about uh, xenophobia, fear, religion, the paranormal, and your your body of work. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I'm really excited to talk about this stuff with you. Well, great. Well, listen, I think you know, recently we had Sam Perry on the podcast. And the first question I ask him, and I'll ask you too, is what's it like to have your area of research in Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism, xenophobia, and these kinds of topics really become exceptionally salient and important to the public in light of both Trump's presidency and the effort to subvert the election of Joe Biden and the Capitol insurrection on January 6th? Well, it's really interesting for me because unlike Sam, who is, I would say, almost all of his stuff has a lot of political relevance. Not all of my work has. So I am a sociologist of religion and deviance by training. So I've done studies on things like, you know, how does social class affect who claims intensive religious experiences or who sees ghosts? And so those, you know what I mean? People haven't had that same sense of uh, political relevancy about those things. I still think they're important to ask. Um, But so for me, it's interesting to see some part of my work get a lot more attention than others. But I think it's good that people are now uh, being able to talk about Christian nationalism and what it is um, and what kinds of effects it has. And of course, it has lots of different dimensions to it. And so I feel like um, it's exciting to see the press and the wider public take note of something that we've kind of long thought was important or claimed was important. Um, and so I appreciate the public attention to it. It's it's a good thing. I think it's really important for our discipline to be out in in public and to be, you know, expressing our our knowledge, you know, sharing our research, getting our insights into into the public sphere. And I, I think that's what's so important about podcasts like this one, that we can share findings and research methods and really perspectives that sociologists bring to contemporary events so that we can, you know, gain support for our field and, and help others to help students and help others, you know, really understand what we do as empirical social scientists who are committed, you know, to a project of really understanding in a deep way what's going on uh, right now. And then, of course, how we got here as a as a society. All right, well, let's dig into your research. I want to start with your book on fear. So 
tell me, like, how did you get interested in what Americans fear and what sources are you drawing from in the book? The, so the kind of the heart of this research project is a series of national surveys. So each year between 2014 and 2019, we ask, you know, a nationally representative sample of Americans uh, a lot of questions about fear. And the premise here was we want to look at the sociological and the political dimensions of fear. So the research team on this is three sociologists and political scientists. And there's a lot of work on fear from a psychological perspective, obviously, um, in terms of phobia, in terms of clinicians, in terms of diagnostics. So there's a lot of it kind of from that angle, but there's much less from a sociological viewpoint. And so we wanted to make sure that we were being true to what we know about fear from those other perspectives. In particular, we use neuroscience a lot. So I try to dig into that and kind of make sure we were uh, undergirding our larger study about fear with our understanding of what it does to the body and the brain. But then from that base, look at what are the sociological dimensions of fear and the political consequences of fear. Um, and so these surveys, we ask these really broad range of questions about fears. So some of them are political fears, right? So they might be things that conservatives are more afraid of, like they might be afraid of Antifa or something, or, and then there might be liberal fears where people are afraid of white supremacists, right? And so some of them are explicitly political in nature. Some of them, and one of them we'll talk a lot about here is xenophobia, which is kind of this generalized fear of immigrants which we will kind of get into is similar to, but not the same as racism in specific forms. We ask about environmental fears, right? So that's an important thing right now is climate change, um, natural disasters, people's fears about those things, whether they're prepared to deal with disasters. We do ask about some phobias and things that you would think of as standard forms of fear, just, you know, running the range from public speaking to heights to, we even ask about zombies and we put all kinds of things on there, honestly, um, looking at all these different dimensions of things people may be afraid of. Fear of crime was another one that was really important. And so what we're trying to do is take all these different dimensions of fear, see how they fit together or don't. Um, and then in particular, see how they mesh with other sociological aspects. So whether that's wor like broader worldview in the sense of religion um, or whether that's, you know, political ideology or political action like voting, whether it's other po uh, political views. So in a sense, what we're trying to do is take this big, broad idea of fear and start to slice it sociologically rather than psychologically. Again, using psychology as part of our base. But that was really the idea. And um, this is the brainchild of my uh, frequent partner in crime, Chris Bader, who he had just finished the um, Baylor religion surveys and moved out to Chapman University and was looking for a new project and wanted to keep working in survey research and thought that fear was really a place that was sort of untapped in terms of sociology. Again, there's a few pockets where we kind of look at it, like fear of crime. There's a literature on that, right? So there are places where people have gotten into it, but not in a full way. And so he really wanted to kind of take that and expand it. And so the book is kind of pulling all these threads together from the survey research. And then we try to supplement that with some qualitative field work in some particular areas and kind of give this sociological overview of fear in the United States. So that's kind of the premise there. Well, I was really impressed by 
the book and really pioneer, not pioneering necessarily, but expanding the work on fear. I mean, obviously, like I think an undergrad, I read Barry Glassner's Culture of Fear, you know, the idea that we fear the wrong things as Americans, yeah. the way that um, media and other kinds of institutions sort of instill in Americans a fear of, you know, crime, particularly, and the wrong kinds of the wrong kinds of people, right? When it comes to certain crimes like sexual assault, you know, fear of the stranger versus fear of someone or really adequate and appropriate concern about someone who you're maybe going on a date with, for example, you know, versus something that's just, you know, random on the, on the street, street crime versus, you know, crime inside the home or, or abuse inside the home or things like that, that are much more, much more common. Yeah, we, we actually we put a title on that in the book. You know, we call it the law of inverse proportionality, which is a bit pompous, but still it's like that people have a sense like it's like the more the rare, the more rare a crime is, the more likely it will get media coverage. And so people's perception of what crime is, is actually sort of inversely related to the likelihood of that crime. So domestic violence, for instance, or child abuse is extremely common, but it's almost never covered in the media. Serial killing almost never happens, but if one does, it'll be in the media for months on end. Um, and so in some sense, people have almost like an inverted sense of what crime is, and that affects how they think about it. I mean, actually, that's really helpful. I was just thinking back to my experience being a teaching assistant for criminology courses in graduate school, and everyone wants to talk about the serial killer that just made the news. And at that point, it was the BTK killer. Oh, yeah. the folks can, you know, if you remember that or can look it up. But, you know, the, the person who's teaching the class just said, like, we have nothing to say, socio almost nothing to say sociologically about serial killers because there are just not enough of them. You know, it's not like there's a, a group of serial killers out there that you can survey about their, you know, demographics and their political ideologies and their, you know, you know other sort of sociodemographic, you know, variables that we... You know what you... What you... What you can say about them is you can look at public response to them, though, and public fascination with them. Um, so Philip Jenkins has a book called Using Murder. It's all about sort of the rhetorical uses of serial murder. So whether it's in media, um, shows, whether it's in the news or politicians. So we can look at it that way. Um, and that's actually quite insightful in a way. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the findings in terms of the, qual the, the quantitative stuff. So then the survey data. So this is a a repeated cross-sectional research design, right? Yes. And what are Americans like most most fearful of? Uh, well, um, environmental fears are up there. Of course, that you know that varies by where you live because some people live in places where there's a high risk of environmental disaster, and others where it's low. But that that's pretty up there, and that one's quite legitimate, of course, um, in a lot of cases. And then there's other ones where people regularly say they're afraid of corrupt politicians, which is you know. A legitimate fear. But again, then you have people mean different things by that. All right. A lot of people who would say they're fearful of corrupt politicians were big supporters of Donald Trump draining the swamp. And of course, he's a pretty corrupt politician. Um, so the ones that come back, though, in terms of things that people are uh, a high level of people are afraid of certain political issues, environmental issues and then uh, crime. Um, and we found some fascinating dimensions on crime. So people, we ask if they think crime has been going up or down recently. And people consistently say crime is getting worse, even though crime has been getting better, violent crime since the 1990s. Now, there's been a plateau on that and actually a little bit of a slight increase in the last year or two on violent crime. But when we were asking these surveys, crime, violent crime had been declining for at least 20 years. And people regularly said that violent crime was getting worse and they were quite afraid of it. 
So crime, the environment, and certain aspects of politics regularly were up there in terms of the most feared things for uh, American samples. In this book, you also did some qualitative work, you and your collaborators, on really interesting groups that are not only fearful of certain things, but also are you know, preparing for disasters and, and uh, other kinds of calamities. So can you talk about the qualitative data? Where did you and your co-authors or who, what groups did you and your co-authors observe? Where did you go? You know, what was, what was most uh, intriguing or uh, enlightening about that part of the work? Yeah, so for ethnographic field work, we had two things in particular. One was to spend time with um, extreme preppers. So these are people who are doing kind of like preparation for the end of the world, essentially, right there. Um, you know, if the power, if all of the power grid goes down and society collapses, they want to be able to survive. So it, we thought it was interesting to look at them because they're kind of taking fear and, in a sense, turning their reaction to it into a, a lifestyle and a subculture. And so um, we, we looked at them as kind of this interesting cultural response to fear. And again, they're actually sort of trying to address their fear head on by doing all this preparation and things. And so um, you can see it mobilizing action. And then another uh, thing we did field work on was conspiracy subcultures. So there's a whole chapter in the book on conspiracy theory. And we asked questions about conspiracy theories across the waves of the survey. And there were, we, we had fascinating results from the survey. Um, I'll just give you, there's a bunch, uh, but I'll give you my favorite one, which is that we ask about these range of questions um, about things uh, to see what Americans think the government is hiding information about. So we'd ask about JFK assassinations or UFOs, standard conspiracy theories. We had about 10 of them. Uh, mass shootings, which is an interesting new one where people think mass shootings are staged. And then we threw in one that we call the North Dakota crash. Now, there is no such. Oh, yeah. North Dakota crash. Right. Very famous. Of course. And a third of Americans said the government is hiding what it knows about the North Dakota crash. And, of course, you know, the secret here is that that's a conspiracy of our own making. There is no North Dakota crash. But one out of three Americans, you take three, you'll get one who's afraid the government's hiding what it knows about this thing we made up which is a really interesting um, assessment of the baseline level of credulity and willingness to believe that the government is corrupt. So, but as part of that, so we had really interesting sort of quantitative findings about that, but you know, with conspiracy theories, you can only get so far by looking at patterns there. You really want to get into that world. You don't want to stay in that world, but you want to get in that world for a minute. And we did this in a couple of ways. And one was to go to a conspiracy convention. And this was essentially, it was more kind of designed around UFOs. and um, But it's kind of a conspiratorial world and looking at the ways that people are weaving these narratives together. And I did some of that work too for Paranormal America. We spent a lot of time in the UFO subculture world, which is, you know, just suffused with conspiracy theory. So we did that to try to provide some narrative about the way people argue about these things and how they build their worldviews around them. And then I did a little bit of, if you want to call it kind of qualitative uh, research, content analysis wise by listening and transcribing a lot of Alex Jones, which I do not recommend for anyone's uh, mental hygiene. But it's still important to try to get into that world and figure out what's going on. So, we, you know, we try to supplement those interesting quantitative dimensions with uh, looking at what these narratives look like. And we kind of came up using that. We came up with this idea of 
this sort of model of conspiratorial Gnosticism, we call it, of why people are interested in these things. It kind of gives them the sense that they have access to the secret knowledge that's different than other people. And in a weird way, it's a feeling of superiority, even though other people are condemning you. It's a form of stigmatized knowledge. But you have this sense that, like, well, we're the people who really know what's going on. And doing the qualitative field work sort of gave us a sense of that much more than you'd ever get from a survey. Um, so the idea was to kind of balance those things out. I really think it's interesting, the kind of the sociology of knowledge angle here and the idea of either forbidden knowledge or stigmatized knowledge, knowledge that is you know irregular, that there's actually a, a subculture in which you know, the the so-called normal science rules of evidence don't seem to apply. And in fact, you know, the absence of evidence is not understood to be damning to these claims. It's actually that, you know, the, the evidence is being uh, deliberately suppressed by powerful, you know, authority figures. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it seems like that um, these conspiracy theories are probably most prevalent among folks who are, you know, marginalized or otherwise, um, you know, stigmatized, have other sorts of difficulties in their in their lives, and this is a way to sort of create distinction uh, between themselves and and other folks, and especially elites, right? So if I have maybe uh, lower levels of education, or if I have um, low levels of economic, you know, power and resources, this might be a way of distinguishing myself. Right. And and illustrating my, my fundamental, uh, not at least my equality with, if not my superiority to the official line of, of the society in which I live, which runs on experts. I mean, to a large to a large degree, although, of course, we've seen a, a widespread distrust in, in experts and expertise uh, recently. It provides a sense of agency there. No, you're exactly right. And it, it you hit on one of my favorite or things I think is most interesting about these subcultures, which is there's this sealed logic to the construction of knowledge. And out the aphorism is absence of evidence is evidence of their power. And the thing is, there's no escape from that logic, right? I mean, if you accept that premise, then no matter what you find, you're going to go ahead and support, you know, the pre-existing belief. And this was part of why I was always fascinated by the paranormal too. But, you know, academics scoff at that. But I think from a sociology of science, sociology of knowledge perspective, that stuff is fascinating. There's all kinds of cultural boundary maintenance going on there. And the conspiracy thing is very similar in that regard. And so that, that gets at part of why I've always found this interesting. But again, when I do the paranormal thing, people just want to know if I've seen Bigfoot, you know, which is the conspiracy theories. Now I can sell those in some sense as being politically relevant. And I actually kick myself a little bit because, you know, I, I went to grad school at Baylor and Alex Jones was just down the road in Austin. And while I was there, I actually thought, boy, it'd be fascinating to study this guy. Right. He's right at the intersection of, you know, religion and deviance is which is what I do. And I actually considered it and I thought, no, no, it's too fringe. Right. And I'm somebody who's willing to chase fringe. And I just thought that's just too fringe, you know, and 10 years later, He's got the future president of the United States on for a half hour interview, you know? So like I missed the boat on that. I usually willing to trust my instincts, but I, I was wrong. That was not too fringe. It got mainstream fast. That's totally interesting. I mean, one of my, one of my grad school interviews was with, was with Tom Guerin at Indiana university who wrote that great book on boundaries of science. And I was, I've been super fascinated with, 
with that question of how we distinguish science from pseudoscience. And really, I was thinking, you know, I teach um, sometimes in intro, I have students read a little bit of Peter, uh, Peter Berger's Invitation to Sociology. And there are some, there's some problems with, with that book, but the, the emphasis on debunking is part of the sort of core of how Berger thinks about what sociologists do. But then you have to think about what are the boundaries of debunking, right? Where do you stop your sort of your inquiry? And you know, when do you get satisfied that you've got, you know, a good enough answer to any particular kind of question? And, and you know, in some ways, the conspiracy um, theorists are, are taking yeah. to heart, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but they're taking to heart a, a scientific kind of viewpoint right? That further inquiry is always required and always needed. And the, the truth is sort of ever receding on the horizon. And so we need to be able to, you know, continue our inquiries, even if, you know, we don't have evidence of, you know, the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or, Bigfoot or, or whatever it is we're, whatever it is we're discussing, you know, in part because of the government conspiracies or government, you know, denying us access to what they know. But it's sort of a problem with the logic of science itself that there's no there's no potential like endpoint that exists within the practice of science. You know, they, science can't tell you when to stop asking questions, right? There are other forces that have to be put into play to make an end to inquiry, even a preliminary end to inquiry, right? The, the use of scientific rhetoric and skepticism as rhetoric inside these subcultures is fascinating. And, you know, it's selective, of course, because usually they're rejected from mainstream science, but then they're willing to use the rhetoric to try to gain back legitimacy in certain ways. They're also willing to abandon it in certain ways and, and combat it and say they're the true scientists or the true open minds or the true skeptics or whatever it may be. But the, the, the uses of uh, science or the relationship to science is really, really interesting inside there. Conspiracy gets at that some, some, some conspiracies more than others, medical conspiracies, which you, I'm sure you're particularly interested in. You know, there you find this really interesting sort of trying to use science sometimes and sometimes trying to avoid it. So it's, it's a really interesting area of study. Well, it sounds like more work, more work can definitely be done. Let's talk, let's go back to fear for just a second. So were you all able in this research to find out or to sort of shed light on why Americans are so fearful? Are we talking mostly media facts? Are we talking uh, partisan polarization politically, economically, you know, or something else going on? Yeah. So let me, I'll, I'll start with the, the, again, the baseline of the human animal and say that humans are generally prone to fear with good reason. It keeps you alive. And so what's happening now is that uh, there are systems in place sociological, technological, that can hijack that fear and hijack your attention because fear gets your attention. That's what it does, right? If you're fearful, that is the thing you, in some sense, must be focused on. I mean, just, you know, from the way your physiology works, right? It's attention grabbing. So if you're, this is the old, it bleeds, it leads thing, right? So that's why those things work. They get your attention. They used to get your attention on the newspaper, but now they're going to get your attention on CNN. There's a mass shooting with regularity in the U.S., right, or there's a horrible crime. And so there is a media effect there where people who consume certain types of media are more fearful and of particular things. So sensationalism makes people more fearful. Um, so, for instance, um, people who watch 24-hour news are more afraid of crime. Okay, so that's you can, there's a media effect there. There's also a media effect from the uh, partitioning of the market, right? So Fox News is going to feed you conservative fears. MSNBC is going to feed you liberal 
fears. Um, and so th- they're both willing. And I'm not trying to both sides this and say one is equivalent to the other, but I will say they're both willing to peddle some fear to get you to watch a show uh, and to sell some ad space. And so um, it does, you know, again, if you can sort of, use this in a particular way, you can get eyeballs and attention and things like that. So sensationalism, the fragmented media landscape, both of those things play into it. Social media now plays into this where uh, people who regularly get news from social media will believe more conspiracy theories or be afraid of crime. Um, And again, this is a, to go back to sort of the way we think this is a hot cognition, cold cognition thing. So fear is hot cognition, right? I mean, you're not supposed to sit down and slowly process through fear. Fear is like threat detection. There's danger, do something about it or pay attention to it and figure out what to do. And so all these different forms of media and technology are able to utilize that to get your attention because that's what fear does. It grabs your attention. And so there is a particular way that these different forms of technology are exacerbating what is our underlying propensity to be fearful. And then there's also the political polarization dimension of it and the political uses of fear. So, you know, of course, Trump is a very prominent, ready example of this, where in some sense, he, you know, based his entire campaign on a fear of outsiders, build a wall, ban Muslim travelers, right? I mean, it and so there's the political uses of it. And because people now, to go into the poli literature for a minute, because of negative affective polarization, where people on the right don't like people on the left now, and people on the left don't like people on the right. And that didn't used to be the case um, as much in the United States, where people like ask survey questions. Would you be OK if your child married you know, a liberal if you're a conservative or vice versa? And people um, didn't have as much othering on that. And now, you know, it's very low percentages. You said they'd be willing to have a child marry across party lines. So that plays into this. Now um, I can use fear if I'm a politician in a sort of a demagogic way and, you know, make you afraid of perhaps outsiders and also the other party at the same time, motivate people to go to the polls. We asked a question on the survey, you know, do you vote? for specific candidates or parties out of fear. And the strongest predictor of that was xenophobia. So xenophobia works. I mean, whatever else you want to say about it, it has political uses. And that's sort of part of the problem with it. So like the media landscape, the technology changes and political polarization all kind of come together into this confluence of, in, of influences. Who, who folks want their children to marry? I mean, my understanding is that cross-party marriage is now more more stigmatized or more disagreed with than uh, than interracial marriages yeah which you know we've been asking about interracial marriage or Gallup and other folks have been asking about interracial marriage for a long time but that's a significant you know dividing line in American society and and political polarization now ranks ahead of it in terms of who you do not want your child to marry which is which is really you know as you say quite a, a reversal from decades from decades past yes. I'm really glad you transitioned to to uh, xenophobia because in several of your recent articles, you link xenophobia to other really important outcomes in politics and culture. And so I'm, I'm curious what your research has found about uh, which Americans are most likely to be xenophobic. And then what are the consequences of that xenophobia for you know, other things we might be concerned about? 
Yeah, sure. So there's a um, there's a handful of kind of sociological patterns or sociodemographic patterns that follow what you might expect where men, older people in the U.S., uh, white Americans, people of lower socioeconomic status, education really matters here. Um, so people with lower levels of education, those people in the with those status characteristics, characteristics tend to be more fearful of immigrants. And we phrase this in such a way, we ask the questions where it's just about immigrants, not about a specific type of immigrant. So in some sense, we're letting people project whatever they think immigrants are. Um, And there's a reason to do that from a survey researcher's perspective, um, because specific forms of racial animus are deviant now, or they're seen as um, being problematic, or people don't want to be called racist. But they're much more willing to say, I don't like immigrants, when it's sort of generalized and not specified. So uh, there's some specific sociological patterns you would expect. Then there's some worldview patterns that are particularly interesting. The two that kind of go together that I find fascinating are Christian nationalism, which you mentioned we've done some research on. Um, So this is the idea that, you know, the United States uh, was founded as and is a uniquely Christian nation and the the American government should defend Christian values and sort of establish Christianity. And that goes along with xenophobia. Those two things are highly correlated. There's not total overlap there. um, But if you think of them as Venn diagrams, there's quite a bit of overlap, I'd say. There's that, you know, so there's some people who are Christian nationalists without xenophobia or vice versa, but often they go together. And another one from the religious world, that really links to xenophobia, and we've got a paper ongoing about this now, is religious evil, belief in religious evil. So belief in like an active Satan in the world, which I find this area absolutely fascinating. People always cast a side eye at this one. But in terms of religion, it's a really consequential dimension that's often overlooked. And in some sense, it goes back, it kind of is a shortcut to that cognitive style of a very binary form of thought, a pure good and a pure evil. And that maps well onto xenophobia, which tends to outline an us and a them along nationalistic and ethno-racial lines. And so there's some interesting um, worldview patterns. And then the last one that kind of goes along with it is conspiracism. So those belief in conspiracy theories also highly correlated with xenophobia. So, for instance, when Trump was trying to use the migrant caravan as a particular rhetorical tool, there are all these conspiracies about George Soros is funding these migrants and refugees and things. And so, or again, to go back to Alex Jones, I mean, that guy's whole show is xenophobia and conspiracy theories. So um, it, it tends to mesh over well there, too. So there's a few kind of sociological patterns and then a few worldview patterns that are particularly interesting and consequential. It sounds like, and what I would have had read from your from your papers is that these these worldview patterns, you know, uh, subscription to a white Christian nationalism, xeno, xenophobic views, all of this is associated with uh, voting, right? And the likelihood of someone you know, supporting Trump in twenty twenty, and of course, you know, uh, you can think about the other ways that you know die hard or hardcore the core beliefs. Um, of a white Christian nationalist, for example, would be allied with those folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th and tried to prevent, you know, the the certification of Joe Biden's election. I mean, do you, you see that in the in the data? Yes, absolutely. So that uh, one of the papers you mentioned there that just was published, 
so what we did in that one is we were interested in have the relationships between views of immigration and voting patterns changed over time? And also has um, sort of the political partisan dimensions of views of immigration changed over time? So what we did for this one is we sort of we leveraged the GSS, which has been asking the same question about do you think we should have less immigration to the United States? And it's asked the same question since I believe it's 1996, and then it's in 2000, and then it's basically 2004, and every wave after that in the general social survey. So we've got that question over time asked the same way. And then the GSS also has voting patterns in presidential elections. So the first thing we wanted to know was, you know, and from other research I've done, we know views of immigration is a key to Trump voting. But now our question was, well, is that unique, right? So was it substantially different than patterns of views of immigration in relation to voting for Mitt Romney, John McCain, George W. Bush in 2004, which would be a pretty interesting comparison. And so the first thing we did is look at views of immigration over time and voting patterns. And the short of it is the votes for Trump were entirely, they, they were the strongest effects we found, but it was part of a rising tide on some sense. So like post George W. Bush, there are people started who were more uh, restrictive about immigration started voting Republican and it was moving up each year of those uh, each four years on those presidential elections to the extent that Romney was the strongest effect up until that point. But then Trump was much stronger than that. So he, in some sense, capitalized on this movement and solidified it. And so we show that it, the effects in the Trump election were significantly stronger, but again, as part of this larger pattern. So that was the first thing to show. And the second thing was, well, what about the party composition? So in the year 2000, if we look at who says they want less immigration, it was basically equally divided amongst Republicans, Democrats, independents, right? You couldn't differentiate a party view if I ask you about immigration. Post 9-11, we start to see some split there where Republicans become more restrictionist. And so there is a bit of an opening of a partisan gap. And then particularly post-2008, we see uh, an opening of a partisan gap. And again, Trump capitalizes on that, and then he really deepens it to the extent where you get in the 2016 and 2018 waves of the GSS. Party identification is a very, very strong predictor of where people fall on immigration. And so there's been this partisan sorting that has happened where it used to be that the restrictionists in terms of immigration were equally distributed. Now they're concentrated. And there's been a backlash against restrictive views of immigration because of Trump's rhetoric and policy. So you can think about the travel ban when he first got into office and there's protests in the airports. And you can see a backlash in public opinion where people start to become they're against that policy. And we actually see that sustained in multiple different data sets. So both the Chapman surveys of fear and the GSS where political independents and Democrats become more favorable to immigrants. And in the Chapman surveys of fear, they become more favorable to Muslims, which we ask about specifically. So because of that, now there's a huge partisan gap on this. And where it used to be not uh, something that differentiated partisans, now it very much differentiates partisans. And because of that, it's going to continue to be really important, particularly in Republican primaries, because if the hardcore base of the party is anti-immigrant, that's the place to go in a primary. Um, and so it'll continue to be important there. And I think it'll continue to be used as a way to try to motivate conservative voters. I think for me, this raises the question of 
what do particularly white xenophobic, perhaps white Christian nationalists, like what is it that they want? I mean, you know, the, the counter, the counter desire seems to be a pluralistic, multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in which uh, voting rights are secured for all eligible people and where folks can really uh, assured that their political views are represented, or at least they have the opportunity to vote and participate freely in political political discussions, political life, community uh, events, and so forth. But it seems to me like there's something much uh, more restrictive and much you know less egalitarian, you know, and less open that you know white Christian nationalists and uh, and xenophobic folks are wanting. I mean, are we talking about really the almost the mainstreaming of like a white ethno state here? I mean, is that that where is that where we're at? I, I don't think we're so uh, here. I want to make two points on this. One is that the people who want a white ethno state are a minority, but they're influential. And Trump legitimized that view in a lot of ways. So I don't want to downplay that part of it because it is important. There you start moving into white supremacy movements, Christian identity, um, you know, there's a whole sort of subset there. But it's not that everybody who wants to restrict immigration wants that. They might want softer versions of this. You can think about the like the contemporary Georgia voting laws, where they're not necessarily looking for a white ethno state, but they're also not looking to expand democracy either. They're trying to restrict that and make sure the quote unquote right kinds of people are voting. Right. So there it's less ethno state and more status quo maintenance of a system that privileges whites and in particularly white men. And so there is an ethno state white supremacy dimension of it. You can look here for, you know, Charlottesville, you know, the storming of the Capitol. We find very influential participation in those things. Of course, you know, Charlottesville is explicitly white nationalists, right? Those are neo-Nazis and white nationalists. The Capitol storming is a more is a mixture of people, but Proud Boys and those types are very influential there. Christian nationalists, very influential there. So some people do want a white ethno state. What Bill Gorski called a fruit salad. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the white, the organized white supremacy is in there and they're active. So I'm not trying to downplay their influence, but it's not that every single person who wants restrictive immigration wants that. But a lot of people who, you know, favor that view want some version of keeping in place or restoring these status quo privileges for certain types of people, which typically means white heterosexual men. And so it's kind of like it runs the gamut from that white ethno state to, you know, good old boys wanting to go back to the good old days. And so I, I, I think there are, there's all of that in there. But I do think this question about immigration is a good way for us to get at this idea. Um, and again, it avoids this sort of explicit survey mm-hmm. bias and methods you find where if you ask people, you know, if you ask white people, if you don't like African-Americans, People are not going to say yes to that, even if they may have, you know, implicit racist views or they don't want immigrants or whatever. But the immigrant question gets you to that a little better. The other thing that I think is implicit in what you're saying and more explicit in these more recent recent comments is patriarchy, sexism, really a, a view of American society much more built around this mythic past of a breadwinner, homemaker, family wage. I mean, the, the type of the, the, even the phrase "Make America Great Again" is is about, it seems to me anyway, about a very specific period in white American history, you know, post World War II, 
uh, family wage, high union density, relatively speaking, you know, uh, a, a mass movement of women from like my grandmother who, who worked in factories in St. Louis making airplanes that were used in the wars in both theaters, right? Or in, in several theaters anyway. <laughs> just say it was just, they were using the war, okay? Anyway, so she went from her rural home in, in South Central Missouri in the Ozark Mountains to St. Louis, the big city, to make bomber planes, right? Um, and then after, after the war, you know, it was back, to uh, hearth and hearth and home, so that that really specific time, undergirded by very explicit public policies and tax incentives, and you know the mortgage you know insurance that, that predominantly just almost exclusively benefited white Americans and lifted millions out of poverty and sort of certainly disadvantaged circumstances. Not to mention the GI Bill and and uh, the way you know the way. Black, black GIs returning, right? They couldn't get in to predominantly white institutions because they were formally barred from those, right? So they're, anyway, that, that whole, that's, that whole, that whole complex is sort of suffused with, you know, both racism and, and sexism, gender um, inequality and, and white patriarchy, you know, fundamentally. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is kind of a recent, um, it's by a historian and she's kind of documenting and you, you see all these different threads coming together in that, um, history of the very conservative evangelical subculture. And there's this idea of wanting to restore this mythic past and sexism plays a big role in that. And of course, racial hierarchy also plays a role in that. And so you, you do see those things kind of going together. Um, and again, even just in the title to go back to make America great again, right? You're just trying to restore some mythical, you know, thing that has been lost. And of course it never existed in the way it's thought of, but as we know, as sociologists, that doesn't matter. That doesn't stop people from trying to still, you know, achieve it in this way. Right. So that, uh, Kristen Cobas Dumay book, Jesus and John Wayne has been, you know, making the rounds, um, other podcasts I listened to have featured, have featured her like, uh, like straight white American Jesus, one of my, one of my favorites. But if if you want more, it's good. It's a it's a, it's a great book. It's really well done. It's it's a good read. If if folks want to learn more about the evangelical white Christian nationalist subculture, they could do worse than listening to than listening to straight white American Jesus and the work of Brad Onishi and Dan Miller. Uh, just a little plug for plug for those folks, among others, of course, too. Well. Um, Joseph, let, let's talk about, maybe put it this way, does your, does your research have any, or do you have any thoughts or implications for uh, working to either depolarize this immigration issue? And I, by that, I don't mean make Democrats more anti-immigrant. I mean, you know, how could we work to change attitudes towards immigrants and, and so-called outsiders? I mean, is this, is this something that, I mean, there's not one cause, right? So, um, you know, what are your thoughts about trying to de-escalate this uh, xenophobia and fear of, of the other, um, particularly amongst, you know, white conservatives in the U.S.? Well, it's such a hard question because it, it is so useful for politicians now, again, particularly, you know, in terms of primaries or mobilizing people against the other side. So there's an incentive there for, for it to be used in that way because it is efficacious for a political end. You know, there there are things we know that that soften people's views of immigrants, you know, of course, like contact theory works here, but you can't always have people ha be in contact. 
general education really matters here. Critical thinking matters here. You know, I'm banging the drum for the liberal arts, which I'm sure people will get behind, but whether or not we can get people to resource that is a different question, right? I work at a state school, you know, so this is not something where everybody necessarily supports the idea that we need to be putting more money in the social sciences and the humanities, but those things do matter um, to help people think about these things in different ways. And the sad truth is that until voters start punishing people who try to use immigration and xenophobia in this way, politicians will continue to use it and they will be able to whip, you know, this up, which is of course, you know, there's so many, it's tragic on so many levels. It's tragic for how ethnic minorities are treated and perceived in our society. It's uh, tragic for the fact that there are real immigration problems and crises to address. So could, Currently, for the Biden administration, there's a lot of unaccompanied minors at the border. That's a serious problem that needs uh, a resource solution, that needs policy solutions. Of course, to get that, you need people to be willing to work in good faith on an actual policy solution and not, you know, use it for fear mongering. And so it's a tough question. I mean, it's education. um, It's humanizing people. But we have to be willing to recognize when fear is being wielded against us and critically evaluate it and not not be willing to be manipulated in that way. That is easier said than done. But I mean, to me, that's about educating yourself about how fear is used. Well, I mean, you've uh, you've helped me think about how I should be thinking more about this and integrating it into some of my classes in terms of, you know, fear and and the structure of of beliefs and how sociologists and and sociology good data uh, like the Chapman survey can be leveraged to understand how these things are patterned and structured into into people's worldviews, and then the consequences because that's a really a really serious a really serious thing that people are struggling. And I think you're right that we have to think more more critically and more and be more thoughtful and slow down our 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 cognitive processes so that we can really evaluate claims seriously. So that I think that's some of the stuff that good liberal arts education does is try to try to slow folks down and get them to actually like think about what they are, the media they're consuming, the numbers that they're hearing, you know, and the kinds of messages that are, are very common in our, our media diets and our social media, media diets and, and beyond. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also, you know, we try to give some practical things people can do for this at the end of the book. Um, they're things nobody wants to hear, which is what I generally find when I give these is like we, we suggest some things and people say, yeah, that sounds good, but that's I'm not it's not happening. So um, don't consume 20, 24 hour news. You know, slow news is not going to hurt you. Um, and of course, Trump sped this up. There seemed like there was something happening every 10 minutes. and People tried to stay wired in it, but that is not good. Your, your brain is not meant to stay in a constant state of anxiety and fear and worry about these things. And so social media is bad for that. So I tell people, you know, you, you use Twitter less, use Facebook less. Nobody wants to hear that. I use Twitter. So, you know, I mean, I understand that people don't like to go on a Twitter diet, but that stuff, you know, moves away from the hot cognition and moves you more toward the cool cognition, um, which is what you need to reason through these things. And so there are things people can do on their own. And I think, of course, for us as educators, like you're saying, the thing for us to do is to make sure we're having dialogue about this 
educating students about how to be media literate and media savvy and also have critical thinking capacity beyond just knowing some sociological concepts, right? Being able to process information in a meaningful way. Um, And so there are things we can do in our profession, but it's really up to the citizenry as a whole to find ways to reject this um, sort of 24 hour news cycle, hot cognition, fear circus and move toward you know, a more policy-minded, cool cognition. How can we best address social problems and make the world people, you know, better for people? And again, it's easier said than done, but that's that's what it will take. I mean, I gotta say, I saw him on Twitter a lot too, but not having for now former President Trump on Twitter has really changed the game. Yeah, I mean, the the volume of material that was on there one when uh, President Trump was tweeting, you know, multiple times a day, often really, really early, just structured you know, the day for a lot of people, especially folks who are really, really on Twitter. Well, let's, um, where can people find you on Twitter, Joseph? Uh, yeah. Now that I've said, don't use social media, you can find me. Uh, my handle is at paradox of belief. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be on there less. So, you know, uh, I'll be on there some, but I'm trying not to be on there all the time. And you can find information about me uh, pretty easily at East Tennessee State. Um, And I'm also currently the editor of the journal Sociology of Religion. Um, So, you know, those are the places that you can uh, find me and find information about my work. Yeah. So, Joseph, please tell us about your book, Deviance Management, uh, Insiders, Outsiders, Hiders and Drifters. It reminds me a lot of Wayne Breckis's work, Peacock Centers and Centaurs and Chameleons, some of the work by, you know, Interactionists and Labeling Theory and and Jack Douglas and his work, The Nude Beach, which is uh, an eye opening text uh, for sure. Yeah, so the the breakfast stuff is actually uh, really. It's I read that book and it really inspired me. It was at the time we were doing Paranormal America first edition, doing all that field work, and we kept noticing these patterns. And then I read that book and I just put together a lot of pieces for me. Um, and so it's built on symbolic interaction. It's also combining the logic of differential association and control theories it, to sort of synthesize the useful elements of those from criminology. But that stuff really set up what we wanted to do there. That was kind of the inspiration for it in a lot of ways. Well, Breckis is a mentor of, of mine. He taught my undergrad sociological theory course. That's fabulous. Yeah. So uh, my tradition is SI and somewhat through Missouri and Peter Hall and uh, Wayne Breckis, but also through the UCSF folks and Anselm Strauss and Adele Clark, Monica Casper, those, those kind of folks. Well, listen, Dr. Joseph Baker, thanks so much for being on the Annex. We really appreciate your insight into paranormal activity, conspiracy theories, xenophobia, white Christian nationalism, and American religious beliefs. I will look forward to this work on religious evil. Uh, I am in a place uh, here in Abilene where folks do definitely reference the devil and talk very explicitly about uh, how, how Satan is influencing Uh, not only their lives, but sort of many events that happen in the world. And so helping uh, me and other folks understand that those dynamics will be really, really helpful. So thanks so much and uh, best of luck editing the, the journal and with your future work. Thanks, Dan. It was great to talk to you. This was the Annex, the Annex podcast.com music by Lena Orsa. Thanks for listening.